0: To Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is a founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Good
1: morning. It's, it's a new year, right? Happy new year. Happy new year. It is January the 10th of a brand new year, so it's good to get back into the swing of Bible study. So thanks for coming out today. Um, Here's what happens when I take too much time off. I lose things. I get out of my routine. So somehow I have lost the little recorder that I use to record these Bible studies. The last one was not uploaded. I was going to do that over the Christmas break. So that means there's a missing episode I do not like that. That is it drives me nuts. But it was just those last few verses of John chapter 12. So we'll, we'll review a little bit of it today, just since we've been gone for like three or four weeks. And uh, that way, if I never find that other episode, at least there's something in there about the closing of John chapter 12. But we want to begin John chapter 13. But before we do, if you have your little prayer card, let's just pray before we study this morning. So read this with me. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting and the all-holy, good and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Well, if you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 13, you're welcome to. We will begin there in a few minutes. But let me say this in summation of John chapter 12. The the difference between 12 and 13, we've reached a dividing point. And John kind of summarizes the first part of the book in the end of chapter 12, when we have verses 44 through 50, the last six verses of chapter 12. John is kind of summarizing the ministry of Jesus to the world. If you remember in the beginning of the Book of John, he writes things like he he talks about how Jesus is the Word of God, the Logos, and how he came from God and how he is God and how it is through him, you know, for God so loved the world in chapter 3 that he sent his only Son, that whosoever would believe in him should have everlasting life. And, you know, those next, uh, those first 12 chapters really showed us some unique Miracles, John called them signs, if you will, signs of proof that of who Jesus is and what his ministry to the world is all about. You know, the seven signs. So a couple of weeks ago, we, before our break, we had a, a review of those seven signs kind of in part of chapter 12. Now, I won't go take time to go back over all those seven signs, but remember they were different. The miracles that John chose to include in his gospel... Are different than the ones that Matthew and Mark and Luke chose. Why? Because John is telling the story for a different purpose. He's not interested in just telling the history of Jesus' life. He's interested in people finding the true theological, mystical person of Jesus Christ as God made flesh. And the transformation That life in Christ is to bring about us. Christianity is not to be a set of rules to believe. We've got to get that through our heads. Always get that through our heads. Christianity is not a a manifesto to be believed in. It's not a set of rules to memorize and to obey. It is the life of God in human flesh, and we are invited to participate in the life of God. Peter, the wonderful, blessed Apostle Peter, said it this way in one of his epistles. He said that we may be partakers of his divine nature. Let's let that soak in just a little bit. You and I, anyone who believes in Jesus, is invited to become a partaker of the divine nature of Almighty God. I've been reviewing with my my Sunday school class, which are college kids, you know, We have a college-aged young adults, I should say. Um, we've been talking a little bit about uh, this, uh, the image of God and, and what is the image of God and what does it mean that the image of God is in us, and we're kind of going through that as we begin this new year. And in that study, we talked about the fact, I asked him, I said, is the image of God in everyone that has ever lived, or is it only in those that believe? So I'll ask you that same question. I, I kind of see a little deer-in-the-headlights look here from some of you, like I did them, too. Is that a trick question? Is that what? Hmm. So they thought about it for a little bit, and they, they were kind of split. Some thought, well, it's in everyone, and some thought, no, it couldn't be in everyone. I mean, we were looking at some really, you think of some heinous characters throughout history, like you know everybody thinks of Adolf Hitler or somebody like that. You know, some really heinous, all the heinous people that have ever lived, the horrible, horrible, sinful, evil people that have ever lived. We think, how could the image of God be in them? But the truth is, it is. If we don't accept the fact that the image of God is in every human life form, then we devalue life altogether. And that's what's happening in our world. And that's why it's so easy for our world to abort unborn children and begin mercy killing and euthanasia and all this kind of stuff that's happening in our world today at an alarming rate. Because human life has been devalued. Christianity above all other teachings, religions, faiths, whatever you want to call them, because Christianity is not a religion. Remember this, it's not a religion. It's a way of life. It's a way of participating in the divine life of God. And Christianity, above all other ways of living, is the only way of life that says all life is sacred. It's the only one. That's the defining difference. So, as we look at John's summation, I'll just go ahead and look through these last six verses of chapter 12 here, uh, in case we don't find that other lost episode We'll have a little something to talk about in years to come. Chapter 12, verse 44. And Jesus cried out, and he said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world, that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has a judge. The word that I have spoken will be his judge on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. The Father who sent me has himself given me commandment of what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has bidden me. And with that, he closes chapter 12. And we see that Jesus is equating this whole idea of belief in him as the same as belief in God. There is no separation. Jesus is trying to say, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he'll continue to develop that in the apostles' minds over these next few chapters. We're, we're getting a lot of Trinitarian teaching here, this oneness uh, of the... Of the uh, Godhead, but yet still the personalities of the Godhead. Jesus is certainly God's son, but yet he says, I only see, I only do, I only hear everything the Father does, and that's what I do. So they work in perfect unity, Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit. We'll hear more about the Holy Spirit in the next few chapters, actually. Um, But the idea that Jesus' mission, this was John's summation, his mission to the world. Why did Jesus come to the world? He was always pre-existent before the world. He's the creator of the world, you know. He was, as the creed tells us, in the beginning, before all things. He, he was there. Why did he come to the world? To save humanity. To save us. That's right. To save humanity. I like that phrase. All human beings. Christ died to save everyone. His, his. Sacrifice. We'll get to that when we get later in John, when we get to the cross, you know, we'll talk more about the idea that his cross, his death, is for everyone, for all who will believe. And we'll talk more about that, this idea of free will and, and our choice to believe. Uh, but for now, let us hear this idea that, that John is saying that Jesus is the word of God. He used that word logos in the beginning of the book and now he uses it again. He says that Jesus he's, he say, he has Jesus saying here, "I didn't come to judge the world. This world already has a judge, and that world is, that judge is the word of God." And what is the word of God? Jesus. Okay? We remember when we're studying scripture here, when we see the word logos, the word, we don't mean the Bible. We mean Jesus, the pre-incarnate, the pre-existent one, and then the incarnate one. Jesus is the Word. He is the Logos of God. Now, there's another word for, another Greek word for written words, like we would call the Bible the written Word of God. And that word is graphene. We get the word and graphics from it in English. Graphene would mean the written words of Scripture passed down. But Jesus isn't talking about that here. He's saying the word of God, meaning the logos, which is himself, from before all time. Um, and he says in the end, his closing thought there, I know that the Father's commandment is eternal life. God speaks. God's word through Jesus is eternal life. Okay. Um we're going to see uh, again where Jesus repeats this theme John repeats for in, in Jesus words this theme that knowing God knowing the Father is the very definition of eternal life and you know, we think if somebody asked us what's the definition of eternal life what would you say what would, Infinity, okay, but how do you? What is it? How do you possess it? What is yeah. eternal life? Well, you got to believe, you got to pray, you got to repent, you got to, you know, confess your sins. All we talk about all these things.
0: Oh, no, I was meaning you don't because it's
1: a grace of God he gives it to you. It's a gift, that's right. And what I want us to see is that gift is more than just a prayer of repentance. It's more than just an act that we do. It's more than just a thought that we uh, intend towards God, eternal life is knowing God. Knowing God. And that's going to be fleshed out for us over these next several chapters because as we turn the page to chapter 13, and let's go ahead and do that, Uh, as we turn the page to chapter 13, we we start the, the balance of the gospel of John. There's almost two halves to this gospel. The first 12 chapters, Jesus' ministry to the world. The last, uh, Little more than half, because of the of the book is about uh, really Jesus' ministry to his disciples. The last half of this book, the Gospel of John, is about Jesus' ministry. We're now in the last week, the last week, the last few days of his life. Okay, we're about to enter into in chapter thirteen, the evening of the Last Supper. i put a few words on the board: the Last Supper, the Eucharist, the Passover. This idea of contention. And the word servitude, and I want to discuss all those as we kind of study this morning. Those are themes that come to us through this chapter. So we're going to read a very familiar story from John chapter 13, the washing of the disciples' feet. But we're going to try and really look beyond just the surface and see what's really happening here. So while we'll break it down, it'll take more than one week to break all this down. Uh, But let's go ahead and read... Uh, And there's no good place to end in this story, in this chapter. I usually like to take short little sections to study. uh, But I'll probably go ahead and read the first 11 verses to start with. So let's look at chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world... He loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and girded himself with a towel. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he has girded himself. He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not now know, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is clean all over, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, you are not all clean. Let's stop there. So it's the night of the Passover. As John tells the story differently, the others give us, you know, the details of Jesus sending the, you know, the disciples out to look for the upper room and to get a place. Uh, the the Master wants to uh, eat the supper with you and all these things. Uh, but John just and, and the other gospels. This is the story. The gospels. Uh, between Luke especially, gives us some very important words of Jesus that that figure into what we call the the Eucharist or the Last Supper. Or sometimes the other word that's used to describe this event is the Holy Communion. Okay, we'll go ahead and write that on on the board as well. Because they all symbolize the same thing here. The, The Last Supper is... I don't like that phrase, okay? It's commonly called that. You see it in Bible headings. I really don't like it. If you want to call it the, and I'll write this down, the Lord's Supper. Now, I think that's much more accurate because it's not the last supper. There's well, it was the last time he ate with them before the cross. But it's a, it's a, as we're going to see as we study it, it's a perpetual meal. Whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we celebrate his death and his resurrection and his coming, expecting of his coming again. And it is a sacrament meant to nurture our souls. And the truth is, it wasn't last. It's it's still going on. So the word in the middle here, the Eucharist, you hear that word. Uh, A lot of our uh, more liturgical churches, uh, historical, ancient churches have always used this word. This word is a Greek word. That means, literally, Eucharistia, which literally means Thanksgiving. Okay? So the Eucharist is the Christian meal of Thanksgiving. Ancient writings of early Christians describe, and I'm talking about writings in like the year 150 in that era, in the very early 100s. Okay, this is within a with less than a hundred years after Jesus death resurrection and ascension we have Christians organized coming together preparing this beautiful Lord's Supper this and they call it a Eucharistic meal okay and it even describes some of these writings one of the uh, more famous ones is from a man named Justin Martyr He was a martyr for the faith and so that's why he, they call him Justin the Martyr he writes in detail about what these early Christian worship services, these, these uh, communion services were like, and uses this word in great detail, this Eucharist, because they're so thankful. The whole purpose of sitting down with that bread and that cup of wine was to say, thank you, Jesus, for your cross. Feed me, nurture me, keep me going, keep me filled. You know, that's the the idea. It's not simply a one-time memorial, but it's an ongoing remembrance. Now, where do we get that idea? Well, we get that idea that it's an ongoing remembrance. We get that idea uh, from some good historical study as well, not just word study, but historical study. I also wrote the word Passover here because we have two things happening here that are merging. We have the ancient Hebrew Customary meal called the Passover. Okay, that was uh, you all remember what the Passover was from, where it was first instituted in Scripture in the lives of the Hebrew people. Before that, in Egypt. This is the Passover meal. Was this? It's the becomes the great high feast day that God commanded Moses to have the people always celebrate because it celebrated God's passing over them. Through the angel of death that came as what the last plague of Israel when Fa- Moses was trying to tell Pharaoh to let the people go out of slavery in Egypt. If you remember that story, uh, there was the angel of death was the final plague, and it was going to kill the firstborn. And so God told Moses, kill a lamb, use the blood of that lamb, and paint that blood of that lamb on the doorposts of the house. And whoever has that blood over their doorposts of their house, the angel of the Lord will pass over they will not die. And then, of course, uh, we know the Hebrew people lived. Pharaoh's son even died. Many in Egypt died. And then we went on. Uh, they, he let the people go. The people wandered through the desert. They got up against the Red Sea, and it looked like they were, uh, they were blocked in again. But God came again, and, and he passed over that situation. And he parted the Red Sea, and he led them through, over and over again, God's Passover was his passing over the the elements that would kill them and provide them with life. So when the Jewish people throughout the centuries got together and celebrated the Passover meal, they weren't just remembering, they were reliving. They were entering into that moment and remembering. Now, when we read this word in uh, you know the scripture, Luke tells it to us, but John doesn't because John's telling this story a little differently, but in that uh, Luke and Gospel, when we, we hear those words where it says, you know on the night that Jesus was betrayed, you know he took um, do this in remembrance of me." The Apostle Paul writes that in the book of 1 Corinthians in detail what Jesus said. Uh, Luke alludes to it then. Um, in his gospel of course but Paul writes it in detail Paul says in the first Corinthian letter these are not my words these are Jesus' words this is in chapter 11 I believe he says for on the night that Jesus was betrayed he took some bread and when he had given thanks he broke it he gave it to his disciples and said this is my body which is broken for you take and eat Paul goes on and says likewise after supper Jesus took a cup and after he had given thanks he gave it to that he said this is the cup of my blood the cup of a new and everlasting covenant it will be shed for you and for many so that sins may be forgiven as often as you do this do this in remembrance of me Paul adds that in there at the, that as often as you do this do this in remembrance of me and he's doing this because he knows these are the words of Jesus. So we know that when Luke's telling the story, uh, it's been handed down through the apostles. This is the way Paul received it. These were the words of Jesus. We call them today the words of institution. Those are the very words that a minister, a clergyman, a priest, or whoever is, is, is authorized to celebrate this sacrament speaks those words as speaking them over the elements, okay, that in that we enter into the mystery of God. We can't explain how this bread and juice or wine, whichever it's being used, you know, we use juice, a lot of churches use wine. Uh, we can't explain how it is that they are the body and blood of Jesus and how they nurture us. But we know we're entering into the mystery of God. It's more than just a remembrance. And we see that in the in the Greek, in the Greek language that the Bible is written in, the New Testament is written in. This word for remembrance is a word called anamnesis. Now, I probably didn't say that right because I'm not a Greek. Anamnesis. And you look into the meaning of that word, and it doesn't mean to just remember. It doesn't mean to just reflect. It means to remember as if to relive. How many of you have ever had a, an occasion where you something was so special in your life that you literally... You maybe were looking at a picture of it, and you were just, you were there. All of a sudden, you were there again in your mind and your heart, right? You were there. It was like that moment had come back to you. That's thats what it's trying to say, this idea of remembrance that's greater than just reflecting. It's participation. Now, um, with that, John doesn't tell us any of that. John tells us a story of the Lord's Supper, this this Holy Communion, this idea of of the Eucharistic night, this Passover meal, John tells us a story about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. What's up with that? Why does John leave out this beautiful... Well, he knows, first of all, that uh, the other Gospels have already taught this. He knows that people have been taught this and that they know this. But the others didn't teach this, and he says, here's perhaps a deeper point that we need to catch. So let's walk through the events of that night in chapter thirteen as they might have happened, okay? Because it may not be just what you've always thought. Now, if you see a picture of the Last Supper, as it's called, I think that Rembrandt was that the famous guy that painted it. Was it Da Vinci? I can't remember now. I think it was Rembrandt. Um, do you know what I mean? That famous, there's not one in this room, I guess. There's, it seems like wherever you go, you can see that long table that shows Jesus in the middle and all the disciples with him, you know, they're, like they posed for this beautiful photograph. Uh, Rembrandt, that's the way Rembrandt saw it in his mind, or if it was da Vinci or whoever, forgive me. But um, that probably was not the way it was. Okay, Most of the time, the tables in the room were shaped like a U. In, in a banquet in first century uh, Hebrew people or Jewish people, they're, they're, the tables were usually set in a U shape. And the head of the table sat right here in the middle of the, the cross table. Okay, And that would have been the supreme head or maybe the person who owned the home, the father of the family, whatever. So that is where we would think Jesus would be sitting at this meal. And... As we read this, as you look through here, it, it says there's a verse two is really important. There's a word that you might have missed, okay? But there's a word there, and, and I want you to look at it with me, verse two. And look how it says, and during supper. During supper. How many of you thought that the foot washing was after they were done eating? I did. For many years. I thought it was, you know, we used to have a beautiful uh, production here, a a play, uh, an Easter play called Living Pictures of Easter. And, you know, there was the beautiful scene of the Last Supper. And then, you know, and then they had this uh, foot washing scene. And it it just seemed like that's the foot. But that's probably not the way it was. And John's giving us a clue here during supper. Something happened during supper that caused Jesus to stop during the supper and get up and wash their feet. Well, let's study a little bit about the Passover and we'll get some clues. During the Passover meal, which is what they're gathered for, they don't know they're gathered for this new Christian meal called the Eucharist. They think they've gathered for the Passover. Okay, And Jesus is going to show them how the Passover becomes the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion. the Passover, they began, the beginning of the meal was the blessing of the cup. There are four cups in the Passover meal, and they each have a name. The first one is called the cup of sanctification. In Hebrew, it's called the Kaddush. And that's the first thing that's done, the the blessing of the cup of sanctification. It's filled with wine, and the the celebrant of the meal, the leader gets up. that would have been Jesus. He gets up, and he blesses. He says the blessing, you know, in, in Hebrew. And... Then after that blessing of that cup, everyone gets up and washes their hands to prepare. So there's a basin, and there's a water, and it's poured, and people would wash their hands. So there's a perfect opportunity here as people are getting up to do this for uh, a basin of water to be used. And, and what do we know about the times when, in those days, what was this so customary about washing people's feet? Was it a custom? Yes. Yeah. It was a custom, right? And why was it done? Because
0: they were in sandals and their feet were probably
1: dirty. That's right. Everywhere they went, their feet were dirty, sandals at best, and those were pretty uh, thin and poor. And it was—if it was rainy, you know—it was muddy out, right? So even though you were clean, and even though you maybe came in clean, you got dirty on your feet going to the meal, right? So the first thing that was done was to wash. Well, who washed their feet this night when they came into the upper room? Does scripture tell us that anyone did? Doesn't tell us, does it? It kind of omits that detail. First thing that would have been done when some guests come to your home, the first thing you do is wash their feet. Now, does the leader of the house wash their feet? Does the owner of the house or the the Servants. servants do? That's right. Servants wash feet of guests who come. So let's think about Jesus and his 12 disciples. Who should have washed feet? One of the 12, yeah. right? One of the 12. Well, should it always be the same one? No. I think it would be pretty big of them to share it, don't you? Okay. It sure wasn't Jesus. I, I can guarantee you, I really don't believe they ever said, hey, Jesus, it's your turn to wash our feet. <laughs> I don't think that ever happened. So, you know, we know that in this Passover meal setting and they come together, they, they should have already thought to do this, okay? But, but what, what we know about this passage uh, is, is that as we go a little further, and we, we study a little further, uh, see if I can allude to it a little here. here, um, If I can find a little passage here I want to allude to for you. Um, we, we haven't gotten that far, but in verses 12 through 17, Jesus is going to talk about the significance of this meal. And I, I, that's why I say there's not a real good place to stop right here, but, but we stopped where we did to give you some background. But um, in, in this washing of the feet, the meal, it's during the supper, the meal has been interrupted, okay? And it's as if to say, when they get up to wash their hands, can you picture this? They get up to wash their hands, and Jesus takes the bowl, puts water in it, takes his outer garment off, rubs a towel around himself, and he stoops down and starts to wash their feet before they can really wash their hands or anything. And what do you think they're thinking then? Oh, my, we forgot to wash our feet. I can't believe Jesus is going to wash our feet. Now, it, come back to the, the table here. Um, a little bit later in this story, when Simon, uh, would, not Simon, but uh, Judas Iscariot, uh, gets to leave the meal, you know, and, and Jesus says, one of you is not clean. And, and you remember that we haven't got to that point, but there will be a point where they say, ask John, or ask the one sitting on his, uh, by his side, leaning on his on his breast, would you, you know, who is it, you know? Um, because we, what Scripture teaches us is that, is that John, the writer of this book, although he doesn't name himself, is, is leaning on Jesus' breast. Now, these tables are places where they would sit down. They didn't sit at chairs like you are. They had low tables, they sat at pillows, and they kind of reclined. Okay, And reclining on Jesus' breast, it tells us, is this one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Over and over, most scholars will tell you they believe that is John who's writing about himself. He's just not naming himself. Um, and in that setting, uh, can you? Re- what do we know about James and John? Now it's interesting that, that James or John is sitting right here beside Jesus. I
0: thought it was Mary Magdalene. When-
1: well, she's not at this meal. Oh. She's not at that meal. There's another one where they're together, and she comes in and washes <laughs> their feet. But but in this, we know that the master of the house sits in the middle. But who sits on the left and right? The
0: they were brothers.
1: But why would James or John get to sit on the left or right? Why not Peter? Why not Bartholomew or Matthew? I mean, who's going to decide who gets to sit on the left and the right? Because tradition, tradition says these are the most important spots. See, there was a tradition. There was a style to these dinners, these parties. It, you think it might be. You know, then Peter could maybe say, hey, I'm in charge here. That would be consistent with his personality. Uh, maybe i should sit there you know turn back a few chapters and remember what we if you went to the, uh, the gospel of mark i believe it's the gospel of mark i can't remember what chapter it is i think it's chapter 10 yes when they're on their way towards jerusalem the way mark tells the gospel do you remember they came down from the mount of transfiguration and james and john are having an argument do you remember what their argument's about When yeah, when you come into your kingdom, who's going to sit on the right and who's going to sit on the left? Because those are the most important places. If you went into a room, if we were going to hold a banquet tonight, we would put the the main person, the guest of honor, if you will, right at the middle of the head table, and right next to him, left and right, are you would um, you would just immediately know those are I guess the more important people in the room. So this is kind of a pecking order, if you will, that is tradition. And so James and John are arguing about who gets to sit on one on your... When you come into your kingdom, who grant that we may sit one on your left and one on your right. We
0: usually think of Peter, James, and
1: John. They were kind of that inner Three. circle, yeah. They were kind of that inner circle. So
0: why wasn't Peter?
1: That's a good question. Peter wasn't arguing with them anyway, but James James, James, and John were brothers. We even have a story from the Gospels that tells us that uh, James and John's mother came to Jesus at one point. And she said, Master... I want you to let my my sons sit one on your left and one on your right. What are they asking? They're asking we want to be we want to be right there with you. We want to be first. Now, bring John's story now back into the. All the other gospels tell those stories about this contention. I put the word contention on the board. There's some strife going on. You know, people. Can you imagine? This isn't. They're 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 busy arguing over who's going to be sitting on the right, who's going to be sitting on the left when they should have been thinking oh, you know what? I think we we should wash our feet before we start this meal. Maybe even wash Jesus' feet, because that's the custom. That's the tradition. And they don't do it. And so they're busy arguing about who's most important, and it's time for the hand washing, and Jesus takes a bowl and water and kneels down and starts to wash their feet. What a shocking story that is. It's now moved, the supper has been stopped, things are out of order now, and Jesus says, this is important. What a perfect time to bring to them a lesson that, that would be, you couldn't imagine a better way to teach it. And that lesson is a lesson of servitude. What does the word servitude mean? It means to, to have the heart of a, and the lifestyle of a servant. A servant is a slave, one who serves another. Okay. If there were slaves in that day, the slave was the one that always washed the feet. If it was a, just a family, the children probably did it. If there were hired servants, the hired servants did it. In Jesus and his band of disciples, it was definitely the disciples, and I'm sure they took their turns. But nobody thought to do it this night. And so Jesus stops all the contention and he doesn't say a word. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't say, you guys have been arguing ever since we've been on the road to Jerusalem. I'm tired of hearing you argue about who's wanting to sit on my left and right. He doesn't say that. He just quietly picks up the bowl that they're all expecting to wash their hands in, puts a towel around his waist, and s- strips off his outer garment, the scripture tells us, puts a towel around his waist. Okay, He would have been dressed now like a slave. And he begins to wash their muddy, dirty This is God made flesh. This is the Lord of all life. This is their savior. They, they don't realize the irony uh, yet of what is happening here. God is stooping to serve them in the most menial way they can imagine. What a powerful story. And, and what happens when Jesus, we don't know what order he goes in, we don't know how many feet he's washed. But he comes to Peter, and what does Peter do? Not me. You're not going to wash my feet. The word in the Greek, it's very emphatic, the you. You are not going to wash my feet. You know, that's the brashness of Peter. It isn't going to happen, sorry. And Jesus responds, If I don't wash your feet, Peter, you have no part in me. And, And Peter's probably thinking, well then, Oh, okay, if oh, that's serious, okay, then not just my feet, do my head, my whole body. Maybe Peter was even thinking about his, his baptism. You know, they've all been baptized in the Jordan River by this time. You know, he's thinking about this washing. And Jesus says, no, no, you're already clean. See that where he says that in, in uh, let's see what verse is that. Let's find that verse for you here. He says, Verse 10, he who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is clean all over. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Jesus is drawing a distinction here between one of the disciples and everybody else. They're all clean. They've all been baptized, but didn't work for this one. You know, by this time, you can bet that Judas was baptized. You know, that happened earlier in the ministry. But yet, he's not clean. And Jesus is is pointing out something very, very important here. You don't need to be rebaptized again, Peter. We don't have to go dunk you or throw water over your head. You're okay. You're clean. But your feet I think there's almost I, I personally think this is a great way to see the analogy of of the spiritual life. You know we we are we are bathed in Christ. We are baptized, we are saved, we are washed, and we are His, and we endeavor to live in His life. but you know what? Our feet still get dirty sometimes. Our feet still get dirty because we're we've got one foot in this world and one foot in heaven. and the one in this world, <laughs> it's pretty hard to keep it clean. Okay. Doesn't mean we lose our salvation. Doesn't mean we're, you know, falling uh, on our way to hell or something. But it's just part of the world. And what Jesus is teaching is, you guys are going to have to always wash one another's feet, because this is the work of a servant. This is the work of love. Um, and and he's going to go on to explain that as we get to the next section, um, but I, I don't want to get there too too quick. Um, so. As we look at these thoughts, John's telling the story differently. He's not concerned with telling the story about the Eucharist. Matthew, Mark did a fine job on that. He's not concerned with, with telling it the way everyone else does, but he is concerned with drawing a parallel between servitude and the humility that a Christian disciple must have and the way these guys have been living. Okay. They have been following him around. I mean, think about where they're headed. Jesus, in a, in a, the next day, is going to be arrested later in the middle of the night. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified. He knows all of this. And they are thinking about the kingdom. They're thinking about who gets to sit on the left, who gets to sit on the right. Jesus is about to come into his kingdom. He's told him he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. Over and over again, he's told him, "I'm on the way to Jerusalem to die." They don't get it. They just couldn't get it. But they will get it. They will get it. We're going to go through this. This every the next four. This is 13. Yeah, the next four chapters are all going to happen from this supper to the time when Jesus is praying in the garden. It's going to take four chapters to envelop that night. We have some of the longest discourses of Jesus here. If your Bible has red words in it, it's printed in red in in chapters uh, 14, 15, and 16, and 17. Amazing things to teach. We're going to take our time going through these because this is Jesus' last opportunity to really teach them before the cross, and this is his ministry to them. Yes?
0: Wouldn't you say in a way that Jesus was trying to teach them of a spiritual washing? Like, I don't have, how can I explain it? Um, like cleansing of your spirit, like he's washing the feet, but he is like trying to work it up, teaching them that it's more than that? Yeah. Like it's a spiritual cleansing.
1: Clean to get into heaven kind of i don't know how to yeah I, well no I think you're I think you're on the right track not the maybe just to get into heaven because he says you're already clean I think that he's trying to show them you're already in relationship with me but he is teaching them as you're, as you're suggesting here this idea that this is this is a spiritual act of service it's an act yes it's physical he wasn't concerned that they would always and forever physically remember to wash their feet it's not like you know your mom would say to you before did you wash your hands before dinner Oh, you go, yeah, really? Let me see those. You get back in there and wash again. He's not concerned with whether they're physically dirty. He's concerned with whether they're spiritually dirty or spiritually clean. So you're on the right track. It's a spiritual. And how do, we, how do we become spiritually clean? What Jesus is showing them is there's only one way, and that is to love one another. And how do you love one another? John, the same writer, in his first epistle, 1 John, says that, brothers and sisters, let us not love one another with words only, but with deeds and actions. How are we going to do it if we don't show it? So be willing to be a servant. Be willing to wash someone else's feet. Be willing to to do the most menial task you can think of out of love for humanity, not just your disciples but for all the world. And so what we see here is Jesus setting up a Jesus setting up a picture of the Christ-like life. The Christ-like life is not someone who is devout at Bible study every Thursday morning at 11 o'clock. even though I love it that you're here. that's not the Christ-like life. The Christ-like life is not the, a person who is so devout they never miss church. They never miss Sunday school. They, never, they read their Bible every day. It's not that. All those things are good. I would say that the real Christ-like person probably does all those things and does them well. But the essence of the Christ-like life is the one who lives like Christ did. And what did Christ do? He served humanity over and over and over Jesus, wherever he was, he came to serve humanity. Not just to die for them, but to serve them. And we must never lose sight of that. That's the challenge of our faith. Sometimes 2,000 years later, and with all the incredible technology we have and the studies and the the benefit of 2,000 years of scholarship and Bible study and history and archaeology, we've reduced the faith of Jesus Christ down to a... A, an understanding rather than an experience and it's just not enough it's not enough to understand that Jesus is the Lord and savior it's we, we must experience him as Lord and savior it's not enough just to tell people that Jesus is lord and savior we must help them experience it by showing him showing them he's Lord and savior well, what better way to show them than by serving them? That's the idea of servitude, and it is, it is the paramount theme of this chapter, chapter 13. So, um, why the feet? Well, it was the obvious. Number one, it was obvious. You know, he didn't make the point with their hands, even though Jews had rituals for hand washing. Okay, they were about to perform one. That's what they were getting up from the table from, I think, to wash their hands in the basin after the cup of sanctification. But it's, it's, it's about the feet. There's a parallel. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 57, I think, and I don't have it printed out here for you, but it should be in Isaiah 52, not 50. It's 52, verse 7. Um, the scripture says, uh, how beautiful are the feet who bring good news. Okay. And Romans, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says that same thing in Romans chapter 10, verse 15. He's actually quoting Isaiah. Did you find it there, Mark? Would you read it for us? Read 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who
0: proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns.
1: That's a beautiful passage, okay? Now, if somebody has Romans, could you look up Romans and and read it also? Romans chapter 10, verse 15, and we're going to compare them. Does anybody have that there? Sarah, read that. Uh, And how are they to preach
0: unless they are sent, as it is written? Obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says,
1: Lord who has believed... What he has heard from us So in both cases um, the idea was the plurality of they they who are called to go and preach, who are sent to go and preach the good news. Isaiah says how beautiful are the feet of those or them or they who bring good news on God's holy mountain. So it's not a passage about Jesus having uh, the, the Messiah being the one with the clean feet. And the beautiful feet. The feet are a metaphor here. They're a metaphor for being everywhere and going everywhere (laughs) and being willing to go everywhere and doing it in a way that's clean and beautiful in a Christ-like way. That's the metaphor. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. That's you and me. Or you and I, whichever is proper English. I struggle with my English sometimes. Um, That's us. We're called... To have clean feet for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we're called to help others have clean feet for Jesus, to be servants. So if you will all take off your shoes right now, we will uh, pass around the basin and wash one another's feet. No, I didn't prepare that. Sorry. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Don't you just cringe when somebody says that? Wouldn't yes. Take off your shoes and your socks right now. <laughs> oh, I didn't wash my feet. No, that's the point. You're not supposed to have They're supposed to be dirty. Why
0: couldn't they wash their own feet?
1: Why couldn't they wash their own? They could have. But it wasn't it wasn't that wasn't the custom. It wasn't the custom because you were a guest at someone's house. And the, the hospitality was king in the it still is. In the Middle East hospita, hospitality is and it should be with all people, not just in the Middle East or uh, but hospitality is is, you know, when your person comes to your house today in our modern culture, you you say, "Well, may, here, let me may I take your coat?" You know, and they take off their, you take their coat. Uh, you know, maybe we're good enough friends We just say, hey, just go throw your coat on the bed, you know, <laughs> or something. You know. But, but this idea of hospitality, so why would they not wash their own? Because they're a guest there. And the, the person who owned the home, the, the, he would provide that kind of service. Even among, and even amongst the, you know, the common people who didn't have um, uh, wealth or didn't have servants and things like that. If you had friends still come over, you would, you would uh, the servant of the house, whoever that maybe that would be your youngest son or whatever, would would provide the foot washing, because it was just that was huge in those days. I mean, it, everywhere you went, you, you needed clean feet. You don't want them tracking mud well, that's through what your I was house, say, you know. That they
0: were, you didn't want them tracking whatever the mud or dirt or heavens knows yeah. what else that were on there
1: exactly
0: into your home.
1: And especially where you're going to be eating. Right, right. So, you know, part of cleanliness. Yeah. cleanliness, Yeah, cleanliness. that's right. So, you know, it's a beautiful metaphor, this idea of the feet. And I think this 13th chapter, is. it's interesting that John chooses to begin his ministry, recording Jesus' ministry to his disciples, his followers, with service. So he's going to continue to teach them all things. Uh, in the next few chapters, that they need to know before the cross, but he begins by showing them how much he thinks of them, how much he loves and respects them, so much so that he's willing to wash their feet. Going to come to a beautiful passage in one of the chapters where he says, "I call you friends." That's going to come out in this discourse with Jesus. I, I now call you my friends. You know, you were my followers, but now you're my friends. Jesus is saying, "We're it's, it's, we're we're on the same level now. You're 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 part of me. Um, it's be- you're in for some really beautiful stuff in John, the middle chapters of the book of John." Uh, Was yes, the
0: foot washing before or after Judas had left?
1: It's uh, I believe it's before, and we're going to see that in the chronology of the story. Um, we're, as we finish out next week, it's too late to get into it this week. But as we get into the rest of the story. In chapter, in verse 12, Jesus is going to start explaining what he's doing, and then we're going to get into some scriptures that talk about Judas and him dipping the bread and giving it to Judas, so I believe believe it's before.
0: Well, there was probably, was there any, do you think, any association with the room that they were in of of the people in this party, the disciples and Jesus? Who, Who would have, I mean, assuming it wasn't their home or anybody's. In that
1: group's home, who would have washed their feet? Well, they would have to have been a shared job by one of them because this isn't anyone's home. It's a room they rented. Yeah. It's a, it's a room I mean. that they rent. It's the upper room but we come to know as the upper room. Right. But they found it for the purpose of celebrating this Passover together. So there conceivably wouldn't have been... Wouldn't have been anyone there. Any servant...
0: There wouldn't have been a servant that there. ...place yeah. to wash your feet. Right. And if those, the disciples, like you pointed out, were contentious in that mm-hmm. they wanted to be, okay, I want to be on your right or your left, or right, exactly. He was
1: showing that, that in Christian service That's, there's no hierarchy. There's no hierarchy. That's right. There's no hierarchy. You shouldn't even be worried about who's on of it. And he's and there's other another place. I can't give you chapter and verse where Jesus talks about you know don't when you go to a banquet don't, don't sit, sit down, front. down front and then somebody asks you to move and you're embarrassed take the back seat you know i always think of that when i go somewhere and, and i say let's sit back here you know i um uh, but that that's that's it. and so i really believe this foot washing thing was something they've done over and over and over everywhere they went or
0: could but they, could they just they have didn't been they used to other people always doing it Maybe they were honored, and other people always did it for them, so they just became so. uh, What do you want to say? Um, I think Olivia thought that maybe I've got to do this. There's not someone who's
1: probably probably some truth to that that because sometimes
0: we can get caught up like that. Yes, get used to having it done for us, so we
1: think that's a great point. And I I think there's some truth to that. They probably were used to it because where they did go, like Martha and Mary's house and different places, but there were still a lot of times when they were on their own in three years where they, you know, they shared this responsibility because this was a responsibility that Jews would not have omitted. Okay. They wouldn't just have skipped it. Well,
0: they would have... He had a meal with Zacchaeus, Right. Matthew. Right. I mean... They had, I don't ever remember in those stories talking about foot washing in those particular instances.
1: But they would have probably done it then. Probably, yeah. At every one of those banquet stories, somebody would have done it. Um, It's just John, and I think that's why John is making, John sees a great opportunity in his gospel narrative to include something that nobody else thought to include. Well,
0: it's kind of insignificant. I mean, if you do it every time you go in someone's house, I mean, that's just a
1: given. I mean, yeah. why would you write about it? Yeah, exactly. It was culturally custom. Why would you write about it? Unless there's a real good point to be made about being a humble, loving servant. And given their attitudes about who can sit us on the right and the left, seemed like a good time to teach that story, <laughs> teach that point. Uh, well, thanks. It's 12 noon. Thanks for coming today. Uh, it's so fun to get back into the swing of things here. Uh, we'll we'll continue on chapter 13 with verse 12 next next week. There was uh, I think I had something I wanted to read as a quote, but I got sidetracked and I missed it. Let me let me just look real quick and see if it's something or whether if it would fit right now or whether I'm way past it. Um, yeah, maybe I can close with this thought. This was from uh, an ancient Christian an ancient Christian. Uh, father of, of the faith named Theodore, Theodore of Mopsuestia, And he said this, Humility is the principle of all virtues. Humility is the principle of all virtues. It removes any contrast, division, or dissension from human beings, and it plants them It plants into them peace and charity. And through charity, it grows and increases. Beautiful thought from Theodore. Humility is the principle, meaning the first or the greatest of all virtues. Everything flows from it. Because if we have not humility, we can't truly love and serve others. I think that's what Theodore's trying to say. Well, let's stop and pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for time together in your word this morning, and what a privilege it is to gather in this new year, and and to begin uh, new habits, and and to get back into the swing of other habits, and Father, thank you for the habit of Bible study, and those that are able to be here today, and may it never be for us just a habit, but truly an experience, a a journey of walking into uh, your divine word, learning from your spirit so thank you please cover over anything I teach that is wrong or or not. Let do not let people be led astray from it but but bless the going forth of your word here this morning into our lives we ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you Father and the Holy Spirit one God forever and ever and unto the ages of ages
0: Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within I'm Roger Culver inviting you to tune in next time as pastor brad opens god's word helping us to form the holy spirit within us until then may grace and peace be with you